Hello, my name is Eric van Reithoven, and I'm from Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. And I am Bogdana Kurillo from University College London. And here is what you need to know about the war in Ukraine that often gets overlooked. Why is Russia doing this, Bogdana? Well, Putin claims that Russia is threatened by the prospect of Ukrainian membership in NATO, which, however, remains as improbable as it was in 2014 when Russia first attacked Ukraine by annexing Crimea and instigating an armed conflict in the Donbas region. Instead, Putin's autocratic regime is more likely to feel threatened by having democracy next door, which could be a driver of democratization within Russia itself. A free Ukraine also limits Russia's power projection in the region and its ability to control its neighbors. Furthermore, the problem could be much deeper and older than Putin's regime, lying in Russia's imperialism. For centuries, Russia has been cursing Ukraine, but also other East European states into its political, economic and cultural space. It sees Ukrainians as subordinate to it, as little Russians. Hence, Putin recently said that Ukraine is not a real nation. His idea to denazify Ukraine means to destroy its sovereignty and eliminate those who do not share Russia's ideology. And as we can see, Russia's imperial ambitions have already taken many lives. Eric, what's the human cost of the war? Even though the war is only a month old, the human cost is already enormous. The UN has already confirmed over 900 civilian deaths, but the real number is likely to be much, much higher as fighting intensifies, especially around major urban areas. This fighting has also contributed to over 2 million people who are internally displaced within Ukraine, as well as 3.5 million Ukrainians who are forced to leave the country. As of right now, the UNHCR is declaring Ukrainian refugee crisis a level three emergency, the highest level level possible. And the situation on the ground is getting even worse as it appears that Russian forces are deliberately targeting, targeting civilian buildings and infrastructure. And just one example, on March 16th, Russian forces bombed a theater in Mariupol where civilians were taking shelter, even though the words children were written in large letters in front and behind the building. And as Russian forces shift towards sieging major cities, we will likely see attacks on civilians intensify. Yes, and there is also a lack of high-functioning, coordinated international aid effort covering the whole of Ukraine. People living in areas where fighting has been most intense are forced to almost fully rely on small civil society groups for food and medical supplies. At the same time, Ukrainian citizens should not be seen as simply passive victims of the war, as they have shown remarkable resilience. This is seen in the local attempts at self-organization to cope with the war. While some people have joined territorial defense forces, basically acting as a police, others have entered the cyber army or volunteered to provide humanitarian assistance. Every day, we also hear about the spontaneous peaceful protests in Russian-occupied cities such as Kherson and Berdyansk, where citizens have even tried to stop Russian tanks with their bare hands. There has also been an impressive show of global solidarity with Ukrainian refugees. But can the West do more? And will there be a no-fly zone? Eric, what do you think? 
Well, a no-fly zone is a non-starter for most Western countries because they don't want to risk open war with Russia, which could escalate into a nuclear conflict. But there is a number of things that could still be done to help Ukraine in addition to supplying weapons and non-lethal aid. One is supporting refugees. Countries like Canada have offered to accept an unlimited number of refugees. And that's great, but it's extremely expensive to get a flight to Canada. Instead, the Canadian and American governments should be chartering direct flights to help refugees leave Eastern Europe and get resettled in North America. Another is more sanctions. Russian oil and gas have been left largely untouched by Western sanctions, and this is especially the case in Europe, which is highly dependent on Russian energy. It is time for Europe to progressively escalate sanctions against Russian energy. Third is to plan for the long term. The West needs to signal that its support for Ukraine is more than just a flash in the pan. And one way that it can do this is by supporting Ukraine's bid to join the European Union. Doing this would signal a long-term commitment, one that extends beyond the current conflict. Bogdana, we're almost out of time. Do you have any final thoughts for us? The key to remember is that the West needs to help Ukraine win this war and protect itself in the long run. Dictatorial regimes cannot be appeased, and trying to satisfy Russia's demands will only encourage it to ask for more. Therefore, any potential peace deal must be on Ukraine's terms, and Ukraine should receive some serious security guarantees that Russian troops will not return. A more robust response from the West is necessary not just to help Ukraine remain a sovereign democracy, but also to prevent the dismantling of the rules-based international order. Thanks for listening. Thank you.